Welcome to the RI Science Podcast. In today's episode, psychiatrist Joanna Moncrieff introduces neuroscientist and professor of developmental psychology, Mark Lewis. Mark looks at the neuroscience of addiction and the arguments against the dominant definition of addiction as a disease. Welcome to the Royal Institution Lecture. I'm just um, going to introduce Mark Lewis, the speaker. I'm Joanna Moncrief. I'm a consultant psychiatrist from London. Um, and I was really interested in introducing Mark and coming to this talk because um, I've, I've done a bit of work in addiction. Most of my work is with people with general mental health problems. And I also feel that the idea that mental health problems is a, are a disease is not a helpful way of viewing them. Um, and I'm, my particular interest has been in the drug treatment of mental health problems, and one of the aspects I've been interested in is the overlap between the drugs that we use to treat mental health problems and the effects of, of recreational drugs and the drugs that people um, misuse and, and get addicted to. And what I really like about Mark's work is its hopefulness, really. And what Mark's book, I think, does really nicely is show that if you ditch the disease model, you can really empower people to believe that they can learn to manage their own problems and, and in many cases, overcome their own problems, and that through doing that, they can, they can grow and develop. I just wanted to read this sentence from the book, which I really liked. So instead of recovering, he says, it seems that addicts keep growing, as does anyone who overcomes their difficulties through deliberation and insight. So Mark's a cognitive neuroscientist and professor of developmental psychology, at, uh, and he used to be based at the University of Toronto for a long time and is currently working at Radboud University in the Netherlands. He's published numerous journal publications specialising in emotional regulation, so how we control our emotions and the effects of that on personality development and cognitive development. He also works as a science writer and his first book in 2012 was called Memoirs of an Addicted Brain and that was an account of his own problems with addiction uh, and, and paralleling that with an account of the neuroscience of addiction, what hap is happening in the brain when people become addicted to substances. The, his latest book, The Biology of, the, of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease, com again combines neuroscience findings with the stories of, of different people who've had addiction problems. And he makes the case that addiction is a special case of, of, of learning, it's not, it's not a different sort of learning, um, but it's an accelerated sort of learning which can be overcome. As I said, there's, a, there's I think, a very hopeful message there which, which I liked very much. So, um, so, Mark, we're ready for you. <laughs> Thanks very much. I don't know what she said about me, <laughs> but I trust her. Um, I'm getting used to the light. And uh, I've now gotten used to the accents. I'm Canadian. I've been living in the Netherlands, so my auditory processing is really screwed up <laughs> at this point. But um, I'm really happy to be here, actually. This is a lovely venue for me. And uh, uh, yeah, that's good to talk to you. I'm going to just jump right into it. I, I used to have a slide that said, you know, addiction can be defined in all these different ways as a disease, as a choice. Um, 
as a self-medication, as a societal or social definition, and so forth. But now I'm just going to cut to the chase and say the prominent, the dominant definition of addiction these days is that it is a disease. And that's a definition that's grown up uh, over the last, well, more than half a century. And it kind of came from a confluence between the 12-step movement, the AA movement from the 30s, and medicine, um, psychiatry in particular, in the 50s and 60s, these, these two strange bedfellows joined, and ever since, the addiction treatment world and the um, psychiatric view of addiction has been as a disease, as a chronic disease. You know, AA defines it as kind of, it's a permanent as, uh, essential feature of people, and that's why they have to be very careful forever for the rest of their lives. So, and that kind of um, evolved into the current definition through um, the recent advance in neuroscience and neuroscience technology and findings, which has, of course, been enormous. And now people talk about addiction as a brain disease. Okay, so it's defined as a brain disease. And here are the main um, constituents of the definition from uh, NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So this is, I'm sure there's an, a parallel organization here, but this is part of the, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health in the US, who actually fund 90% of the addiction research in the world, in the world, it's a lot. And National Institutes of Health, while they obviously have a medical orientation. So this is, this is the definition they come up with. Addiction is defined as a chronic relapsing brain disease that is characterized by compulsive drug seeking and use despite harmful consequences. So emphasize chronic relapsing brain disease. Um, brain imaging studies from drug addicted individuals show physical changes in the areas of the brain that are critical for judgment, decision making, learning and memory, and behavior control, all the good stuff. And, and again, physical changes in the brain is, this is all from their website. It's on all of their literature, publications, talks, and. Uh, articles. And, and finally, the last important point is that in vulnerable individuals, the disease of addiction is produced by chronic administration of the drugs themselves. In other words, the drugs cause the addiction. That's been part of the, uh, the um, hegemony, the, the dominant view for a long time. Okay, so here's the model. Um, and, and yeah, I'm just going to give you the simplified, straight version of, of the model. And it's not a model that I disagree with, by the way. It's pretty, it's pretty well uh, um, researched and well defended, and there's been a lot of studies that converge on this kind of model of addiction. There's, there's three regions you have to think about. First is the prefrontal cortex, and in particular, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is the most um, sophisticated region up here, and it's responsible for judgment, decision-making, uh, um, perspective taking, self-regulation, all that good stuff. Um, and you can think of that as the bridge of the ship. That's where we steer our behavior. That's, that's where we steer ourselves from. So there's that region, and then there's the striatum, the, which uh, the ventral striatum is sometimes called the nucleus accumbens. You'll see that a lot in the addiction literature. And we can call that the motivational engine. So the striatum evolved as part of the motor system, and it actually gets us mammals to act and to basically pursue goals, because that's what we do when we act, we pursue goals. The goal might be getting away from something, but in this case, let's focus on getting towards something. And it also generates the motivation for doing that. So mammals, like, unlike frogs, need a push to get them to do something. They need a motive or an emotional drive. 
You know, we don't just flick out our tongues when a fly goes by. We have to uh, have, feel some kind of uh, attraction. And that is generated by the striatum. So you can see that that's an important region of the brain when it comes to addiction. Um, and then the, the, this part of the midbrain, the ventral tegmental area, is, you can call it a dopamine pump. It manufactures dopamine, which is a neurochemical you'll often read about in addiction studies. And what dopamine does is it basically, uh, it does a lot of things, but it partly it energizes the striatum, it turns on all these cells in the striatum, and it gets the striatum to focus on the goal. So it narrows the, the, the beam of attention, and it drives behavior toward the goal, and um, yeah, that's what it does. It focuses and drives behavior and uh, allows you to follow a sequence of steps that leads to the goal that you're after, the particular goal. So what happens in addiction is that uh, you get a lot of dopamine coming up from the midbrain to the striatum in the presence of drugs or booze or gambling or sex or porn or pizza or whatever it is that you're addicted to. And... Um, so the striatum is activated and becomes focused on the goal. And that happens again and again and again. And it happens in response to cues or stimuli that are connected to the activity of choice, the thing that you want. Okay, so then the other issue is that there is naturally a balance between striatal activation and prefrontal cortex activation because you need to control these impulses. And we do, you know, all the time, every moment of our waking life, pretty much, there's some kind of balance between impulse and, and control, self-regulation, modifying behavior in favor of, you know, better, better consequences in the long run. Um, and in addiction, what happens is that the, this bundle of fibers that connects these two regions, it becomes, it becomes less crosstalk. So there's a reduction in the um, communication between the striatum and the prefrontal cortex. And what happens over time is that these two systems become uh, less connected, and you can even think of them as being somewhat, uh, um, well, disconnected from each other, uh, when in the presence of drugs or cues or other, other stimuli associated, it doesn't mean that this, this disconnection is always there, um, because you can live a very normal life and do very normal and well-planned things that are that require judgment and uh, logic, but when those cues are around, when you're driving by the, walking by the pub or the liquor store, or you know, you, your, your dealer calls, that's when this disconnection occurs time and time and time again. So that's the problem, right? That's a big problem. We all agree that it's a big problem. Okay, so this is, what, this is a graph showing what happens when people take drugs like uh, is it cocaine, alcohol, and heroin? Yes. <laughs> um, for some period of time. And over time, what you get in certain regions, according to a number of different labs, you get uh, actual reduction in gray matter volume in some of these regions of the prefrontal cortex, the dorsal prefrontal cortex, and that's a very closely related region called the anterior cingulate cortex. They're very connected. And what this shows is that gray matter volume drops with from year with the duration of the addiction. And the loss of gray matter volume means that they're losing synaptic density. They're losing synapses. They're not, brain cells are not dying. You're not, cells are not dying. But the connections, you're losing the density of connections is decreased over time. Okay, so that's, that's a pretty important finding. And, um, well, <laughs> it sounds like a disease, right? It sounds like it's something is really going wrong with the brain. So why not call it a disease? Why not call it a disease? Well, because 
Well, that's what the rest of the talk is. It's the because. What I want to do is not to challenge the neural data, but to reinterpret it and to try to figure out what's wrong with the interpretation. Because the data are pretty solid. So the first point is, I'm a developmental psychologist by, by training, and um, I've thought about changing brains throughout most of my career. If you study child development, of course, it's an obvious thing that brains change radically from infancy through, uh, through adolescence into adulthood. I mean, that's how we learn language and communication and everything else we learn. The brain is obviously changing. That's what it's for. It's a flexible organ. It's not designed to stay the same like a liver or a heart or a kidney. Um, but so the question would be that uh, if brains change with learning and development, then brain change by itself doesn't necessarily mean brain disease. So the next question is, and by the way, brains don't stop changing at the age of 20, but they'd probably change less after that age, after things kind of solidify. So, uh, so the question is, how do brains change with development? From the age of four to the age of 20, it's losing synapses, it's losing 20 to 50% of its synapses because there's a huge overabundance of synapses in infancy. And so what happens with development is that you get this, this, uh, this change. And what's going on, we call it synaptic pruning. And what's going on is that this part and this part, these are association cortex, are more sophisticated, more advanced regions of cortex. This is the last part to go. This is the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in charge of judgment and perspective taking, okay? So that means that by the time you're 20, you can actually think straight. <laughs> but not before. <laughs> okay, so that's the brain change with development. Just to give you an idea of what, what it looks like, to see, to see what pruning looks like, the big picture in development. Um, but development and learning are actually very similar. They're almost, almost synonymous. And they simply involve two processes, two mechanisms. One is synaptic growth and one is synaptic pruning. You get a proliferation of synapses or synaptogenesis, and then you get pruning of synapses. And the balance of those two mechanisms is development in, in the brain, in the cortex. That's development. There's nothing else. And I think of it as being kind of like the ivy on the garden wall, which starts off, you know, quite chaotic and, and uh, uh, disorganized, and then uh, that would be parallel to synaptic growth, and you get novelty and new associations and increasing knowledge and skills, and you learn to play new keys on the piano, and, you know, you learn to be whatever. You learn all these new skills. Um, and then with development, you get more and more pruning, so you get consolidation, more efficiency, and habit formation. That's what pruning is for, is to make the brain more efficient so that it focuses, so that several, the really important pathways become uh, entrenched, um, they become myelinated, they become, uh, um, yeah, they become, uh, uh, they, they, they convert and send signals much more rapidly, and the unimportant synapses just fade and disappear. So, if you think about, if you think about addiction, um, in terms of synaptic pruning, then this decrement in, in prefrontal, in, in the density of synapses in certain prefrontal areas, this decrease in synapses can be thought of as part of a bigger picture. And then we shouldn't be surprised, if that's a developmental progression, we shouldn't be surprised by further synaptic change if people stop. And in fact, that's what this particular study found, is that with uh, abstinence from from coke, alcohol, and heroin, you get, um, you get an increase in gray matter volume in very similar areas. They're not exactly the same. The brain never actually goes backwards 
and development that just doesn't happen. But it goes forward, and there are, there's increasing growth and increasing synapses in new regions that are closely related, and they're probably very much involved in self-regulation, impulse control, because that's what people need to learn when they stop taking drugs. And notice that within, uh, within one year or so, you actually get increasing synaptic density over and above the general population in those regions that seem to be responsible for self-control. That's what happens when people quit. And by the way, I should just note that people, that addicts generally do quit. Not everybody knows that. But the majority of addicts for any kind of substance, and even heroin, end up quitting. And it varies, the time frame and the proportion varies with the substance. With cocaine, the average duration of an addiction is four years. With, um, with marijuana, if you smoke it compulsively, it's six years. With alcohol, it's 15 years. And with tobacco, it's 25 years. <laughs> so that's the, that's the really evil one. On average, if you start smoking today, on average, you will stop in 25 years. <laughs> it's not really a good thing. Uh, okay, so lots more change happens when people's habits change, when their behavior changes, when they stop taking whatever it is they're taking. Um, so I would say that addiction is sort of a, a kind of skill. Um, the addict's brain learns to efficiently identify and aim behavior. There's less prefrontal activation because it's the same behavioral re routine repeating itself day after day, hour after hour. There's very highly uh, uh, um, consolidated, habitualized, ritualized forms of behavior in place of having to wonder and think and judge and consider and compare and all that stuff that most of us do most of the time. It's a strange way to think of addiction, but I think it really is like that. It's a kind of a skill, a very a nasty one, obviously, but still. Um, and then we should, we should recognize that uh, new skills or the formation of deep habits always change the brain. It's not just addiction. So what are some examples? Well, driving a taxi in London is one of the classic ones. Uh, you've probably heard that London cab drivers have a hippocampus that's the part of the brain in charge of, uh, of memory, certain kinds of memory, which is 20% uh, more dense or more heavy than normal people. Why? Because they have to learn the location of like thousands, tens of thousands of streets. Well, probably not anymore because they just have GPS. But this, this finding came, came from uh, a few years ago and it's been replicated many times. So that's kind of cool. Let's move off the hippocampus and talk about falling in love. When you fall in love, there are all kinds of changes to the brain. There's increased dopamine to the striatum, there's more activation of the ventral striatum, there's more synaptic patterns, and of course those patterns represent the loved person. This is like an addiction in the sense that you have a repeated behavior day after day in which the uh, emotional appeal of that other person is highlighted, is emphasized. All you can think about is their good points at first. <laughs> 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 Uh, you know, kind of like with heroin. <laughs> um, and there's, there's lots of research, research showing that not just humans, but even with rodents, prairie voles, you get increasing dopamine flow to the, um, to the ventral striatum when they are mating, when they're in the process of... Prairie voles are studied because they, they're a monogamous. They're one of the few monogamous mammals. So their, their uh, romantic habits have been studied in some depth because that's supposed to be like humans. Um, it's up for debate. <laughs> okay, so falling in love, and uh, 
mindfulness meditation practice changes the brain. There's been a lot of research on that in the last 10 years. If you're, if you're a brain nerd, you might be interested that the, the default mode network, which is a network which processes information that has to do with self-reflection, uh, um, thinking about your past, thinking about your future, and rehearsing patterns that have to do with your own activity and your own yeah, self. And it's mindfulness meditation uh, reduces activation in the default mode network. Okay, it becomes, it becomes muted, that activation, because you're just not as ego-involved. And, uh, you know, this, this is like a fascinating area of research. Um, all these other behavioral addictions um, change the brain. I'll get to that in a minute. Binge eating, binge drinking, binge anything, binge shopping change the brain. Um, and psychotherapy changes the brain. I just, I just wanted to, I started looking at this just recently. I thought, well, I'm talking about brain change and I'm saying everything changes the brain. Anything that's important and that's, you know, that really changes the way you function in the world is going to change the brain in a more measurable, uh, um, recognizable way. And so psychotherapy should do it. And in fact, I've found lots of literature on that. There's studies with CBT, um, there's studies with other forms of psychotherapy showing brain change. The other interesting thing is that not only addictions to substances, but also behavioral addictions change the brain in almost exactly the same way as substance addictions. I've been to conferences on that. There have been a few in the last few years. Um, the International Society for Behavioral Addictions has a conference every couple of years. And it's amazing, but all the brain changes that people associate with substance abuse, you find them in gambling, porn, sex addiction, uh, and... Uh, uh, binge eating disorder, and obesity as well. Internet or gaming addiction, internet gaming, psychiatrists don't know what to do about this, but it's now entered the DSM. There's now a category for conditions that are under discussion, and people are starting to call this an addiction. People can spend up to 18 hours a day on the internet, and it really screws up their life. So, in other words, the, um, the, 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 the proposition that drugs cause addiction has to be completely wrong. Drugs do not cause addiction. Um, <laughs> internet gaming causes addiction. Falling in love causes addiction. All of these things have same, the sort, same sorts of fundamental properties. Um, okay, so I'm gonna move on and say, given all that, we have to still understand what addiction is. And especially we have to understand why is it so hard to stop? It's not just sufficient to say that it's not a disease. What is it? And that's what I'm gonna spend the rest of this talk talking about. What is it? Why is it so hard to stop? And there's three points that I want to make. First one is that uh, you, um, addiction is based on a strong attraction to something, to a substance or a behavior, um, which is repeated many times and which leads to deep learning or accelerated learning. Uh, that's the first point. The second point is this uh, mechanism called now appeal or delayed discounting, which I'll talk about. And then last is something called ego fatigue, um, or um, uh, ego depletion, which is basically the loss of self-control. If you try too hard to control things, you actually lose the capacity to do so efficiently. Okay, so I'm gonna go through those three points. The first one, this is the basic picture. I see addiction as a feedback cycle. It's a self-reinforcing, self-perpetuating self, uh, feedback cycle. And we could think of it simplistically as uh, craving leads to more drug imagery and more drug imagery leads to craving and round and round it goes and it builds on itself and that can happen in five minutes or half an hour or half a day or whatever it is. Uh, and finally, when it gets intense enough, you go and you get some or you do some or you drink some or whatever it is or you smoke some. Okay, so that's the feedback cycle. 
Uh, now let's try to think about that in terms of what's going on in the brain. Here's a, a simplistic cartoon, but we'll start here with the trigger phase, and there's always some kind of perceptual trigger. Um, it can be, you know, looking at paraphernalia or booze commercials or whatever it is, but it could be finding you know, half a pill on the bathroom floor, or it could be, you know, having an intense dream about getting high or whatever it is. All of these things are triggers or cues. So what? So they are. Um, they are. Uh, um, inputted in or whatever perceived through the, through the back of the brain, through the posterior regions of the, of the brain. Um, and then you've got all these associations that are kind of mediated by the temporal lobes here, the part that's associated with memory. Um, and all these images come up. And as they do, the midbrain sends dopamine up to the striatum. And the striatum generates desire, which addicts call craving for good reason, because this desire for something that's not immediately available, and we call that craving. <clears throat> Same thing in love. Um, and then the striatum sends messages back to the midbrain and says, more dopamine, please, and there's a little feedback cycle right there between those two parts of the brain, and the craving increases, and imagining increases, and, um, of course, the prefrontal cortex becomes activated, and, now, and you're planning, where am I going to get it? How am I going to pay for it? Am I really going to do it? I was going to wait until Tuesday. I was going to wait until the weekend. I was going to wait until I could share it with, you know, my friend. But no, I guess, uh, you know, I could probably borrow some money from my aunt, and, you know, then I could... And all that stuff is strategizing, which is going on in the PFC, which is connecting, of course, to, to the, the uh, elaboration of imaging in the, uh, in the association areas, and those parts grow on each other. And finally, the, um, <clears throat> of course, during this process, you're sending commands to the motor cortex, and the motor cortex does what you tell it to do, and you go and you get the stuff, or you get high, or you get sex, or you get porn, or you gamble, and then you feel better, and then it's done, it's finished. <laughs> I'm not really crying, I just have something in my eye. <laughs> but it is sad. <laughs> you had such a good time, and now it's over. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's really the point in this, addictive, in this addictive spiral, this feedback cycle, is that when it's over, there is always loss, there's often depression, um, there's often uh, shame, self-contempt, uh, remorse, all that stuff, which of course makes you feel like doing it again. So that's a feedback cycle at another scale, a scale of day-to-day, day-to-day, day-to-day. With cocaine, it could be hour-to-hour. So what's really going on here is that I want to trace this feedback cycle and show you how it plays out over development. There's the trigger, the cue, leads to craving. Craving leads to imagining. Imagining leads back to, well, let's just say, more perception of, of the intended activity. And that's an intensification cycle, and it goes on for a while. And finally, when it gets intense enough, you go get some, and you do some. That's the using part. Uh, and, and now you get high or whatever, get drunk. Um, and what does that do? It has three effects. The first effect is relief, relief or pleasure. And, uh, you know, in learning theory, that's just positive reinforcement. That's positive reinforcement, so, so, so it, um, it reinforces the behavior and uh, entrenches it further. So that's learning. And then comes loss, okay? And then the cycle repeats itself, like I just said. So you get... So you get, you get uh, relief, 
learning and loss, and then you do it again. Now, think about every time this cycle go, every time you go through this cycle in your mind and your brain, what you're doing is activating particular synapses in a particular synaptic configuration that you've been building up over occasions, maybe, maybe weeks, months, or years, whatever it is, and you're reinforcing those synaptic, those synaptic connections. Every time, you're reinforcing those synaptic connections. Think of the IV, the IV, you're, you're reinforcing, which means you are uh, developing some synapses and you're pruning the synapses that aren't involved, and so you are actually sculpting and consolidating the synaptic configuration that makes you an addict. So you do that time after time, day after day, week after week, month after month, and that's development. That's development. That's the development of a habit, of a very intense habit, a, an emotional habit, a strong, strongly uh, um, compelling habit, but it is, it is still a habit. It's a learned habit. And uh, again, think about the IV. Think about as this is happening, you're pruning synapses, you're losing some synaptic connections in the prefrontal cortex, and you're consolidating the addictive pattern. Okay, so that's, that's the first point. That's a general learning uh, um, model of, of the development of addiction. Second is this phenomenon that I call now appeal, that the psychologists call delay discounting. This is, you might be familiar with this from the famous marshmallow test, where they, they take, uh, this uh, came from, was it, uh, was it Michelle? Yeah, they, they get three or four year old kids in a room and a nice lady comes in and says, would you like to have one marshmallow now or, or would you like to wait for a few minutes? I'll be back in three minutes and then you can have two marshmallows. And three year olds um, sit there when the woman leaves the room and they twitch, <laughs> they agonize because they, the marshmallow is sitting right in front of them. They really want that marshmallow. And some of them caress it, some of them kiss it. You, there, there's, a, there's a movie uh, this, uh, on YouTube, which is just fantastic. Just look up marshmallow task. It's the first thing that comes up on YouTube. There's one for adults too, by the way. I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so this is, this is how it works. Dopamine focuses attention on the immediate goal, and that produces craving. And it's the immediacy that's the issue. So all mammals have delayed discounting. They have a tendency to overvalue immediate available rewards over more distal rewards, more long-term benefits, to their detriment, because if they, went, if they waited a little while, they'd have a bigger net uh, uh, um, gain. And all mammals do it, even pigeons do it. And the, the point is that you sort of know that. We mammals kind of know that but we do it anyway, because it's built into the striatum. It's built into the dopamine system. You go for the low-hanging fruit. It's, it's a very fundamental mechanism. And here's an example. Uh, why is, uh, th these are called discounting curves. And this, on the x-axis, we have time, and on the y-axis, we have the perceived value of the reward. Well, here's the reward. It's a piece of cake. Uh, that's a, that's a, um, uh, a reward that's immediately available. And, but if you didn't have that piece of cake, you could, in a month you could, have, you could lose five pounds. And you could have a slimmer, nicer body or something like that. So the question is, why is that man going after the cake? And what these discounting curves show is that the rise in the perceived value of the reward goes up quite suddenly. It's not just an exponential curve, it's a hyperbolic curve. It's a sudden, sudden curve. When you get close to the immediate reward, the perceived value suddenly goes up. You're done. You're going after that cake, whether you get fat or not. 
So he's going after that cake because it seems worth more than imagined future happiness at this point, right now, right here, right there. And that's because the dopamine system is tuned to the cake, tuned to the immediate reward. So the consequences are, I think, fairly obvious. There's an immediate goal which seems worth a lot more than the long-term goal, and so you blow it off, whether you're going to be out of money, out of whether your girlfriend's going to leave you, whether you're going to get in trouble with the cops, whether you're going to lose your job. Those are future events, and all you can really think about is whether or not I'm going to get high tonight or today. You, you never hear people say, let's get high next week. Right? <laughs> it's just, you're not going to hear that. Let's get high next Tuesday. No. <laughs> so let's get high now, tonight, today. So, yeah. The immediate goal outweighs the imagined future, and that's just the way it works. Um, here's a study which I think is kind of cool because it, it recreates, it simulates this in the lab. These are tests in which the, uh, the participant looks at a screen and they are offered small immediate rewards, so that smaller, sooner rewards, and they can click that button, or uh, larger, later rewards, which means they can get, you know, uh, you know, like one euro today versus five euros next week, or I should say pounds, or I don't know what currency you guys are going to be using. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but that's, that's the task, and you sit there, and everybody has a kind of ratio, a built-in ratio between immediate, smaller, sooner, and long-term benefits. We have a, that's sort of really part of our personality. Um, and so the thing is that when you put this machine on the participant's head, this is TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. And what it does is it discombobulates the, uh, the, prefront, the area of cortex that it's right over. It just disorganizes it, so it loses its, its, uh, yeah, its function. And this happens to be over the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is my favorite area of the brain. Um, and so when you turn on the machine, guess what happens? The, the uh, discounting curve, the ratio between shorter, sooner, and longer, later rewards changes. You are less able to hold on for later rewards, and you uh, are more impulsive and going more after the uh, immediate things. You become more impulsive, more compulsive, and, and so forth. And that's really, I think, parallels what we see when we see the loss of a connection between the striatum and the prefrontal cortex in addiction. That's exactly what we're seeing, that loss of connection. And here we can produce it in a lab. Luckily, it's, uh, it's only temporary. Okay, so that's, that's now appeal. The next phenomenon is this phenomenon of ego depletion or ego fatigue. And this is also a completely normal psychological mechanism. The, one of the earliest experiments, I think, expresses it best that uh, what, what um, this is Baumeister's work, and what they would do is they would bring participants into the lab and they would say, you can't have eaten in the last eight hours, so they come in hungry. And you have a bowl of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies and a bowl of radishes. And ha you know, psychologists love these kinds of studies because they're perfectly balanced and controlled. Half the sample is said, you can eat all the radishes you want, but no cookies. And the other half says, you can eat all the cookies you want, but no radishes. It's a perfect experiment, right? Uh, it's sat deeply satisfying to the, to the psychologist and all of us. Uh, and what happens is that the, 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 after 10 or 15 minutes of the situation, the people who have to suppress the impulse to eat the cookies um, are 
do not do as well on a series of cognitive tasks. So they're given a bunch of cognitive tasks and they just don't do as well. These tasks require cognitive control or executive control and you've kind of lost some of that. It's become fatigued. You've, you've worn some of it out. Well, this is a phenomenon and it's very difficult to try to figure out exactly why that's, that's it's been examined for many years now and there's recently been challenged in some ways. But um, the point is that you can't keep trying not to do something. That's the point. You can't keep trying to suppress an immediate impulse. It's like holding your arm out to the side. You can do it for five minutes. Try doing it for an hour. The machinery isn't built for that. Okay, it's not built for that. So addicts have a really hard time with that, an extremely hard time, because they have to suppress, control, inhibit their impulses for hours at a time, days at a time, weeks at a time. They're told in their AA group, you can never drink again, and they're told that their, their addiction is doing push-ups in the parking lot, and uh, they have to be on their guard all the time. And that's really, really difficult. It's so difficult that most of them fail, and the success rate in AA is 5 to 8%. So, uh, the, of course, one of the problems is that there are cues everywhere, and uh, especially with alcohol, it's particularly diff difficult because also with smoking, the cues are, are, are all around us. So it continues to turn on the dopamine system, focus your attention on the anticipated reward, and then you have to say, no, I'm not doing that. No, no. Um, so the, the response to this recommended by the, uh, the uh, executive cortex of the United States of America um, was just say no. This is Nancy Reagan. I don't know how many of you remember Nancy Reagan, the, hus the wife, husband, wife of Ronald Reagan. And, and she was one of the spokespeople for the war on drugs, one of many that keeps going on. And her, yeah, she, they were counseling and, and, and you know, uh, um, uh, urging young people, just say no to drugs, just say no to drugs. Well, Okay, here's an example of what happens when you just say no. In this study, participants watched a terribly sad movie clip. So it shows like, you know, a, a little kid with his father and the father dies and the kid's all alone and it's very sad. And half the group is told to suppress their emotions and their expressions. Don't feel it, don't show it. And the other half of the group is told to think about the film, to think about what the film is trying to portray, to intellectualize it. In other words, to reappraise it. It's a very different way of dealing with it. And uh, in this particular study, what we see is that those who are told to not show any emotions show a reduced, reduced activity in that region of cortex that produces this response that is how we control our impulses. So that's pretty significant. We're seeing now that actually just trying to say no to yourself for a short period of time is already enough to change the functioning of, co of the cognitive control part of the brain. And if that happens on any one occasion, you can imagine what happens occasion after occasion after occasion. You, that, that circuitry is changing and starting to become less effective over time, and that's really serious for addicts. So just saying no is not the right answer. Suppressing those impulses, saying no, isn't what works. What works is to reappraise the situation, to think about, well, if you take this as a parallel, think about what your addiction is about. Think about why I, I do some counseling with, uh, with, with addicts over, over uh, Skype, and I never try to tell them that you have to stop. I know better. I don't say you have to stop taking drugs or drinking. I say, you know, let's talk about how you're feeling and let's talk about what you want to do and if you're going to get high, okay, that's fine, well, let's talk about that. And just take all that pressure off so that you're not making that kind of demand on the system and rather 
start to think about what's going on in your life and what's going on in your past and what's going on and what does this drug or substance do for you, and that's the way to start to change how the system functions. Now, in the book, by the way, I, it's not full of neuroscience. In the book, I tell the story of five addicts. Um, one is a heroin addict, one's a meth addict, one was addicted to pharmaceutical uh, opiates, um, the fourth one was a British man who was an alcoholic, a very serious alcoholic, and the fifth one was an eating disordered person. And each of these people I interviewed for many, many hours over Skype. They're from all over the world. Um, and I chose people who could talk about their addictions because they were articulate and honest and they, they had, were able to think about it and remember it clearly. I wasn't cherry-picking cherry them. And their stories all had a very kind of similar uh, profile to them. The, the addiction would progress and it would become more and more difficult to control and it would come to a point where it was really screwing up their lives in a very serious way and then the attempt to stop would start happening and there would be a number of failures. This was the case for me when I was an addict. It's a very typical profile and finally things get serious enough that people get really, really uh, uh, um, determined to stop and that determination starts to change the picture. The, the guy who's an alcoholic, uh, was very, very close to, to death, actually. He was, he was very close to death through alcohol or suicide, whichever came first. And he would have these, um, these four-hour days. He would get up, he would wake up, he'd go straight to the fridge and, and, and pour a bunch of rum in his Coke and dr start drinking it before he got to the toilet. Actually, he would finish the first one by the time he finished peeing. Um, and then he'd go back and get a second one. And he kept doing this. And uh, he... Um, well, he got drunker and drunker, and finally, after three or four hours, he would become sort of comatose, fall on the floor, and not be able to walk, and crawl to his bed, and get in his bed, and then wake up and start the cycle again. So he didn't have, like, normal days. He, he had four-hour days. And uh, this went on for some, some period of time until he managed to get the help that he needed and to quit. And I'm going to talk about recovery now. And talk about how this happens. Because for each of the people in my book, they actually did find a way out of addiction, as people generally do. It takes time, it takes effort, but people do find a way out. Most people, not everybody. For some people, it's a dead end, but the percentage is small. Okay, so what I want to say is that the disease model is not helping these people. The disease model of addiction isn't just wrong, it's also harmful. And one way you can get to this conclusion is just by looking at the stats on, uh, on conventional rehab programs. Conventional rehab programs have very poor success rates. Usually people relapse anywhere from two to ten times. It's, you know, it's a revolving door phenomenon. I'm sure you've heard about it. They go from program to program to program. They get kicked out. They get, uh, they get court mandated to other programs. They get on waiting lists for state-funded programs, which are universally crappy. They, in the U.S., they spend all their money and all their family's money in this process. And these are rehab centers that um, have, a, you know, their the main... The, um, the banner is the disease model. You have a disease and we're going to help you. This is a really, really big calling, uh, calling card for addicts. And a lot of addicts kind of welcome that. They say, well, okay, I have a disease. That's why I do these things. And uh, I can't help myself. And that's really, that explains it. I have a disease, okay? But that's not necessarily beneficial. What disease model advocates say is that this reduces stigma and shame and, you know, con and contempt and guilt and all that stuff. Because if you have a disease, well, you shouldn't be blamed, right? So it's supposed to make you feel better. But 
I don't know, if someone told you you have a chronic brain disease that makes you do horrible things, would that make you feel better? I mean, I just, I don't, I think the logic is really flawed. And the, the many addicts that I talk to, of course, not all addicts talk to me, and some people probably don't want to talk to me, but, but the ones that I talk to say, I never felt like I had a disease, I never felt like I had an illness, but when I was in AA, I kept getting told that I have this lifelong illness, and I have to guard against it with all my might, and... It never felt right to me, and it never made sense to me, and blah, blah, blah. And finally, they left, and they went somewhere else, and they did something else, and finally, they quit. Okay, so a lot of addicts don't feel good about the disease model. They don't find that it's helpful. But the outcome stats themselves are bad enough. The fact that these... The other problem is that these rehab facilities, these addiction treatment centers, they... they 85% of them in the U.S. are based on the disease model, 85%. And an almost overlapping 85% uses 12-step methods as their primary, primary uh, um, uh, intervention method. Well, you know, that's hard to actually figure out because medicine is this, and 12 steps has very little to do with medicine. It's kind of based on a religious orientation. It came from the notion that, you know, you are powerless and you have to give your power away to God and that's the only way you're ever going to get better. And this is a really kind of a strange uh, a confluence between that model and the medical model. But the thing they have in common is the idea that addiction is for good, that it's, it's a fundamental flaw, it's an essential characteristic of the person, and it's not going to go away, it's chronic. So you have to continue to do what we tell you. And that's the real commonality. You have to do what we tell you, not what you think you should do, because that's not working. You have to do what we tell you. That's the big problem. So I would say that the disease model fails addicts because, okay, the disease model calls for medical treatment as the primary intervention, um, although 12-step methods are deeply, deeply conflated with it. Um, and medicalization, the whole setup, makes addicts into patients and patients hand over control to professionals. That's what you do when you're a patient. You do what you're told. Which causes uh, an increased belief that you're chronic, that's belief in chronicity. Um, there's this loss of empowerment. It's the first of the 12 steps, I am powerless. Admit that you are powerless. And um, this sense of fatalism and surrender, which for many addicts is actually a ticket to increased uh, relapse rates. I can't help it, I can't stop it, and that's why I keep doing it. In fact, there's a number of studies that show, um, I know of two and three of them, one about alcohol, one of methamphetamine, that shows that belief in the disease model itself is a predictor of relapse. Those, those who believe in the model relapse more frequently and, more, and sooner than those who don't. So that in itself is quite telling. I know I sound a bit like a zealot on this. <laughs> well, you know, I just, I, every time I sort of calm down, I think, well, you know, there's, and there is, there is room for overlap. There is a gray area. There are disease-like aspects of addiction. It, that part is true. And I should also say that I'm not saying that doctors should be out of the picture entirely. Not at all. There are some addictions for which medical intervention is really, really helpful. The main one is opiate addiction, addiction to heroin and other opiates, because when you get off heroin, you have these nasty withdrawal symptoms. And for two or three weeks, you're highly vulnerable to relapse because you feel like shit. You really, really feel like shit. So if you are given methadone or buprenorphine, which is sometimes called suboxone, these are opiate substitutes, they will reduce the withdrawal symptoms or completely eliminate them, and then you might be able to have you know, a more uh, tapered uh, trajectory into, into quitting. 
course, sometimes that doesn't happen, and people will often stay on opiate substitutes for long periods of time, sometimes for life. So that's considered to be problematic, but it's not as problematic as dying on the street because of a heroin overdose. So I'm certainly not saying that these kinds of interventions should not be, should not be available. They should be available. But that's not useful for meth addicts or coke addicts or um, addicts to a whole bunch of other things. All the behavioral addictions. There's no drug that helps you get over gambling or sex addiction or porn addiction or eating disorders. Oh, except, you know, methamphetamine. <laughs> that's, you know, that's, how, that's why it was prescribed years ago. It's for people who ate too much. You take a bunch of speed and you stop eating. Um, so, uh, yeah, but for all, all those other addictions, there really are not appropriate drugs. For alcohol, there are some drugs that help to a certain degree. There's, there's stuff like antabuse, which makes you sick when you drink. So that can be very effective um, because that tends to make you not drink until you stop taking your antabuse because you really want to drink. <laughs> so you stop taking your antabuse and then you drink. So it's really a bit of a flawed treatment strategy, but it does work for some people. And nowadays they're talking about baclofen. Anyone heard of baclofen? It, it, it's, a, it's a benzodiazepine which uh, apparently helps reduce cravings for alcohol and for opiates. And if that works, great, let's use it. I'm not, uh, I'm not in any way adverse to that. But none of these things touch on the psychological mechanisms that get people into addiction and that make it so incredibly resilient. And those psychological mechanisms have to be dealt with. And doctors don't have the tools for that. They just don't have the tools. They're not trained in that, usually. Okay, so I'm going to end by saying that. How do we help addicts? Well, I'm going to go back to the two things that I've emphasized. How, first, how do we help addicts feel empowered rather than disempowered, which is a potent antidote to ego fatigue, to feel empowered. I can do it. Okay? And I think that we need to help them own other goals. It's really important to replace the addictive goal with something else. You can't just spend all your time not doing something. You have to do something. It has to be an attraction to something. For me, when I quit around the age of 30, um, I was doing meditation and Tai Chi. I went out and did Tai Chi in the park every night for an hour. It was great. And so I had something else to do, which really uh, helped me. Um, and that's generally the case. Help them own other goals. But when I say own, I mean it has to be your goals. You have to formulate those goals. They can't be handed to you by a group or by a physician you know, or by a sponsor. And that's what, you have to, that's what you have to capture. You have to capture that motivation, that sense of ownership. Okay? That's really empowerment. And that's coming from, well, the striatum in part. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we have to help addicts envision a future. Because now appeal actually, you know, cuts off the ends of the temporal dimension. It cuts off the past and it cuts off the future. You can only think about today. You can only think about getting high. You're now stuck in this kind of eternal present tense. That's really serious, because you can't even imagine a future. You don't want to think about next week. You can't think about next week. You don't want to think about the past. It's all too awful and disgusting. And how did I get like this? And how did I, you know, my marriage break up, and I lost contact with my kids? And that's not nice to think about. So you're just stuck in this eternal present. So you need to help addicts think about the past and the future and get that back into their, 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 uh, um, uh, yeah, into their mindset. Um, so I think one way to think about that is to see life as a narrative, to see your life as a story which is moving on. I come from there, this is what happened to me. I, myself, I went to a crappy boarding school for two years, got very depressed, came out, went to Berkeley, 
got stoned a lot, became addicted to certain things, da 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 now I'm here, and now I'm going to do this and become a psychologist and have a good life. So I was able to put the strands together. And addicts are not able to do that sometimes. They need help. And so I think that's what professionals and family members and friends and lovers and lots of other people can do. Help them think about where they come from and where they're going to. You put those two things together, and that's the magic uh, formula, I think. It's, well, it's not that simple. It's not a simple thing, but that's certainly a part of it. So what you're doing, basically, is reconnecting the striatum, that's empowerment, with the prefrontal cortex. You're reconnecting the motivational engine with the bridge of the ship. There's all these psychological tools, psychological interventions that are out there, that are available, that need to be funded, explored, and uh, uh, extended. Cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, motivational interviewing, uh, psychoanalytic therapy works for some people, mindfulness meditation, lots of really good results now with using mindfulness meditation to help addicts, which I think is very exciting. Um, contingency management's another psych approach, uh, and uh, um, compassion-focused therapy, social support, scaffolding, all those things can be very, very useful, and the particular recipe has to be determined according to the individual and his or her needs. And remember, the brain never stops changing. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you very much, Mark. That was fantastic. A great... Um a great uh, introduction to neuroscience and the neuroscience of development. That was fantastic. Um, I, I don't think that all British addiction services are completely wedded to the disease model, but we've probably got a lot of people here who've got experience of those services and can, uh, and can um, enlighten us more. My experience is certainly some of them are using at least some of the principles that, you, that you've outlined. Good. Um, but anyway... Um, it's time for contributions. If you're up in the gallery, wave hard because I, I'm blocked by the lights. And I've seen you first, so we'll start with you. Hi, thank you very much for your talk. It was amazing. Great, um, this might be a bit of a controversial question in the world of psychiatry, especially now. Um, but are you familiar with the use of um, uh, ancient kind of psychotropic substances such as iboga and ayahuasca and uh, what you think about those and if they're possible uh, for treating addiction? Um, yeah, I, I am somewhat familiar with that, and there's been a new wave of research into using psychedelics for treatment of anxiety, depression, PTSD, and addiction, um, and uh, I think it's great, <laughs> I mean, in a nutshell. I, I think that psychedelics are in a very different category than drugs like heroin and methamphetamine for most people. Uh, for most people, they can be uh, very helpful for all kinds of issues of self-actualization, getting a better sense of yourself in the world. Of course, for some people, they're not nice, and some people have to just avoid them. But in general, I think, you know, they have this tremendous capacity for changing one's perspective in a pretty radical way, which might take a long time through psychotherapy. So I, I think it's very uh, promising. There were some questions up there. On the right, thank you. Thank you for your talk. Um, I just okay. wanted a, que a question about unintended consequences. So you're talking very much about the brain, individual brains, and, and, and the sub-brain level about how all this stuff works. If you were to go up to the societal level, yeah. um, I'm thinking of an example like in Australia where they're effectively banning cigarette smoking through lawful means. Is there anything that can be learned from that? And do you think there might be bigger consequences that... that that, that, that you might be suppressing addictive 
um, outcomes uh -huh. on, on, a, on a very large scale by those sort of uh, lawful interventions. And maybe that's outside your field, but... Like, like those who have what? What was the last bit? Um, the lawful interventions which are trying to stop this addictive behaviour. It's, it's, it's not addressing any of the stuff you've talked about, but right, could it be see. unintended consequences? You know, I mean, I kind of follow Johan Hari, a British journalist who wrote a book called the, uh, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. The War on Drugs has been this massive program and policy uh, um, that has been uh, disseminated by Western governments, particularly by the US, to suppress and block the availability of drugs that we don't want people to take. And it was originally, you know, kind of like, uh, well, particularly targeted toward uh, cocaine and heroin. It had strong racist uh, characteristics because we didn't like the way black people took cocaine and heroin. And even now in the US, blacks are much more likely to land in prison for cocaine related offenses, including just using cocaine, than our white people. But the overall, the overall outcome of the war on drugs has been disastrous. You try to suppress drugs, you try to suppress drug availability, and what happens is you're handing it over to criminal elements. So you get these massive empires of these drug cartels that have really overtaken uh, well, Mexico for sure, and a lot of the rest of Central and South America. They're incredibly powerful because if people want a particular commodity and it gets blocked at one point, it gets, it gets uh, made available by another point, supply and demand. Well, we tried it with alcohol, right, with pro prohibition. That didn't work very well. So if there is a way that one could actually close down access to really dangerous drugs like methamphetamine or heroin, maybe that would be a good thing. But I just don't think we're capable of it. Now, maybe you could do that with cigarettes, but again, well, in Canada, for example, you get your cigarettes from the, uh, native reservations because, you know, Canadian law doesn't extend to those reservations, so and they're cheaper and they're not taxed and so forth. It's just all these different channels for people getting what they want. So better to deal with the 10% who really have problems with substances than try to ban these substances entirely and end up with hundreds of thousands of people in jail. There was a, a man behind you, that's right, who's had his hand up for a while. And, um... Thanks. Thank you so much for the talk. Um, okay. I thought it was really interesting towards the end when you mentioned motivation. Where are you? Uh, I can't find you. Oh, there oh, you sorry. are. Hi. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, particularly the, the internal aspect of motivation. Um, and it's something that I've, I've struggled with, especially with about motivation, about personal motivation, uh -huh. about connecting um, addicts with, with the world and with their sort of, their life narrative is a very important part of, of where you see the, the answer being. Yeah. Um, it's something I've actually struggled with, with people, people that I would look at and, and see as lacking motivation who have no sort of addictive problem, but I would see as not really making the best of themselves and as, of their lives because they don't have that internal engine. Uh -huh. And always very frustrating because it seems to be the, the one thing that you can't give to someone because yeah. it is so so intrinsic to them as a person. So yeah. I don't know whether it's one of the specific psychological approaches you, you listed on the scales at the end, but if there was something that you would, what, what are your thoughts on, on helping people to achieve that? Yeah, well, there's something called motivational interviewing, which is a, a, um, an approach to psychotherapy, talk psychotherapy, uh, that helps people really look for what it is that they're attracted to and helps them kind of clear the air and put things in perspective in terms of what their goals are. Um, so maybe that's part of the answer. I, I think there are societal blocks uh, and constraints on what 
people are capable of achieving. As, as I said before, when you have like oppressed sectors of the population and so forth, they maybe have good reason to be lacking motivation because they're not going to get a good job and they're not going to, you know, uh, whatever, um, they're not going to be able to accumulate wealth or property, whatever it is they're after. So sometimes there's a reason for people to be lacking motivation. But when those factors are not important, are not, are not uh, dominant, then, um, yeah, you know, it's a hard problem. I mean, I, I agree, it's a hard problem. How do you help somebody find something which is intrinsically only available for them to find? So, the balcony person, sorry. Yes, you want to go? <laughs> um, thank you very much, Mark. Ooh, really okay. Um I'm a member of a, a loved one who's an addict. How would you say, from the unique perspective of someone who's an addict, how best to support them without enabling their activities? And do you see any hereditary um, aspects to addiction? Um, so there are different personality, personality characteristics that predispose toward addiction to some degree, 5, 10, 15% each, whatever it is. But it doesn't matter how you get there. If you, get, if you become, if you have a serious addiction problem, yes, of course, it's very difficult. What addicts need is inclusion, connection, love, acceptance, um, and, uh, uh, and so forth. Um, but it's really hard sometimes to love an addict. It's hard to know how to give them support and acceptance when in fact they're not only wrecking their own life, but wrecking yours as well, perhaps the lives of their children. And, you know, it's their, they can be pretty unpleasant people. So I think people have to find a balance between firmness and uh, making, defining their own limits and clarifying what those limits are and being able to accept the other person without rejecting them entirely. So you can say, look, I don't want to see you when you're smashed. I don't want to be around you when you're drunk. But tomorrow, when you're not drunk anymore, come on over for lunch, or whatever it is. Or we could have a talk. Or if you don't want to get drunk tonight, you know, you could come for a visit, we could watch a movie together, or we can go out. Um, so there's ways in which you can sort of, I guess, uh, um, you know, disseminate your regard for that person and your uh, capacity to approve of them and connect with them without having to be in their presence when they are actually uh, harming you, causing you distress. I, 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 should, I should mention the, uh, the Rat Park studies. Uh, uh, the, uh, very, very briefly, we were talking about other animals and so forth, and what, what a number of researchers found some very, very uh, counter, well, perhaps counterintuitive results um, in the 80s and 90s, they found that they gave rats morphine, a choice between morphine and water, regular water, and rats that were in the normal steel cages, one rat to a cage, would prefer the morphine to the water, like your monkeys. And rat park was they took these animals out of their isolated cages, put them in a large wooden enclosure where they could interact with other rats and socialize and have fun together, and they had toys to play with, rat toys, and guess what? They stopped preferring morphine. They started preferring water. And even those who were physically addicted to the morphine would spontaneously stop taking it, even though they had to suffer withdrawal symptoms, because they preferred the socialization to the, uh, to the morphine. And I think that's one way of trying to highlight the fact that addicts really do need to be connected with other people. We don't want to isolate them completely, because that just makes it worse. OK. So, um, so thank you very much then, Mark. Thank it was, you. That was a fantastic <laughs> thank, you all. thank you. Thanks for listening. 
Next time, Gina Rippon tells us how neuroimaging data is being misused to perpetuate tired gender stereotypes.